Good morning and welcome to the Coffee and Cap Rates podcast, your go-to source for New York City's latest commercial real estate insights. This program is brought to you by Ariel Property Advisors. Hi, everyone. It's Shimon Skouri with Ariel Property Advisors and uh, Coffee and Cap Rates uh, podcast today. Excited to have Jay Martin as a guest here. Jay is the Executive Director of the Community Housing Improvement Program, known as CHIP. It's a trade association representing 4,000 owners of rent-stabilized rental properties. In the last four years, we've seen owners suffer several times. First, from AGSTPA, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019. Then, during COVID, uh, which you know brought the eviction moratorium and rent freezes uh, without real recourse or ability to uh, collect these rents over time. And then the last thing was inflation and the spike in interest rates that started in 2022 and continues until, until today. Um, Jay has worked tirelessly to advocate for, these, for, for all of the members, uh, but really doing it in a way that explains more of why the city needs um, to change some of the regulation that took place in 2019 uh, more than anything else. Jay, we recently saw a loss in the Supreme Court, um, you know, as as Chief and RSA, two organizations that came together to um, to say that the law is really uh, taking. Uh, what's next? Uh, or briefly, can you tell us how should we look at the legal aspects of it? Yep. Uh, Shimon, first of all, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, uh, glad to be here. Uh, look, it's w- the challenge that we mounted against the HSTPA actually started in 2018, um, before the, the last iteration of the law um, was passed in 2019. Um, there was a lot of research done, um, and that research is still very sound. Uh, basically, we believe we were unsuccessful because of the type of case we brought. So there's two kinds of cases you can bring um, to challenge a law at this level. Uh, if you are not granted uh, decisions at a lower court level, which is what we were expecting. Um, the, the circuit courts, the lower court systems here on the Eastern Seaboard and in New York and spe- specifically are, are not generally viewed as favorable to property rights arguments. And because this is obviously um, essentially a property rights issue at the end of the day, um, when you're arguing from a property rights perspective, um, you have to figure out the best path to get to the Supreme Court. So as an organization that represents many, many property owners, we had to approach this case as one that would get the most relief um, for the most people, as opposed to a very specific fact pattern. which is the benefit if you win. So you, you have the ability to strike down the law broadly or change parts of the law broadly through court decision. Um, the negative is that the court can sometimes be very um, not interested, I should say, in looking at very speci- uh, very facial challenges to the law, very esoteric kind of academic arguments. And they're much more looking for, and the court has shown this, the Supreme Court, has shown this historically for very specific aggrieved individuals um, and individuals who have been aggrieved directly by the law specifically. So 
we knew this was going to be a difficult challenge. We wanted to take this first shot uh, as a very broad assault against the law, frankly, because we know, again, going back to 2018 and further, for decades, the, the rent stabilization law as it exists in New York has not really provided true affordability. Uh, it was actually never designed to do that. It was designed as a kind of a price ceiling cap. And over the years, as this city has not built enough housing to house enough people that live here, um, lawmakers, policymakers have looked to the law to become a de facto affordability program. So we're at a point now where so many people are reliant on ultra below restricted rents through the program to be able to afford to live in New York. At the same time, we have not built enough housing for the market to correct for that loss of housing need. Um, so we've run into this vicious cycle of this law restricting the ability for an owner to invest in the property through vacancies and through other means. Um, at the same time, when we need more housing to be built, as well as all the other areas that you have pointed out where expenses have increased, uh, the Rent Guidelines Board votes consistently below what those cost increases are. And that difference um, has led to um, the deterioration of the quality of the housing and a flight of, of I would argue, people who want to invest good money, um, good resources mm -hmm. into housing to make it better in the long term. So all yeah. that all that to surmise uh, is that this is this was one very big step along the process, but it by no means is the end. Um, we now know what the court wants to see, or we believe we have a better idea. So we are going to be working, and I'm sure many in the industry are going to as well, to be launching very specific, uh, as applied lawsuits against the law at various court levels. And we remain committed to lobbying, um, as you know, Shimon, and, and as you worked with me yes. very directly um, uh, on the law's punitive effects, because, you know, um, and you said it to me before, a, a matching of interests. There is no reason why we can't match the interest of a property owner to want to make a good living, um, investing in property in New York, investing in making it better, and the want of a, of a renter to have stability, long-term, good quality housing that the owner is incentivized to invest in. The current system does the opposite of that. It requires kind of a scarcity model that people kind of protect themselves financially knowing that there is not enough revenue to the building and in the long run it'll be difficult to maintain if something goes wrong so yeah we can change this and we should and i look forward to working with you to do that yeah and i think i think you're absolutely right i mean the tenant protection part is not something we hear from landlords right they're okay with tenants staying as long as they need to in a rent stabilized apartment and renewing the leases you never hear that from landlords what you do hear is give us the opportunity to make economic adjustments when there is a vacancy so we can charge more rent but also rehab the units and make the buildings a lot better and you called it right it's it's the alignment of interest that we're looking for now i think that you were pragmatic in the past uh few years and trying to also initiate initiate a legislation that's called local regulated housing restoration adjustment to the bill uh, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, what is it and why do you think it's good 
for landlords, but not just for landlords, but also for tenants and for the city? Yeah. Um, the one thing I've been pretty clear, and I and I probably could have been even clearer because I think a lot of people were hoping for, obviously, the court victory. Is that we have to we have to change the law regardless of what happens in the court. The idea that you know one court victory here or there is going to change the trajectory or fix the market, um, I think is a is a dangerous one to put all our eggs in that one basket, so to speak. So yes, we we have been lobbying intensively with the lawmakers, educating them, frankly, because. Many of them are unfamiliar with the economics of running rent stabilized buildings. They were unfamiliar with what how punitive the law was going to be when they passed it. Um, and again, they were caught up in the language of protecting renters as opposed to the balancing that's needed on the financial well-being of these buildings. So the law basically is, is fairly simple. Um, New York is an outlier across the entire country. No other, no other municipality, state, uh, in the country has vacancy control. The 2019 law essentially said that if, if a renter leaves an apartment, no matter what happens, that rent stays the same. Uh, and when I describe this to people outside of New York, they they are just stunned to hear that this is the, how it is, is operated. Even California, with, with the perception of being uh, very punitive against property rights, has the ability for an owner to reset the rent when an apartment becomes vacant. So we are not even asking for that in this law. Um, we would love to, but we know the lawmakers are, are have to get to the point where they're comfortable understanding that the market can work and not be punitive to renters. So the law very simply would allow an owner, if a unit comes off of 10 years of occupancy, to set a rent that would allow them to collect enough rent to renovate the apartment. As we know, an apartment 10 years or more, and in some cases, 20, 30, and on average, 30 to 40 years of occupancy, which is what the average rent stabilized uh, renter stays in their apartment for 20 plus years, uh, needs significant improvements, uh, not just for the aesthetic reasons or the cosmetic, but for the uh, local law mandates that have been implied. The, for example, the lead law mandates have changed over the last 15 years. The measurement of what was once considered lead safe as technology has improved in measurement uh, as the understanding of how lead interacts with renters and their properties um, has lowered from from a 0.1 threshold to a 0.05 threshold. It's been halved and, it, and it's going lower even at the federal level. So that in and of itself, the the renovation, the lead abatement of a pro unit of property of a, of a apartment is significant investment on turnover and it's required it cannot be done with a tenant in occupancy so when the apartment becomes vacant it should be allowed and that is what the law would allow us to do to set a rent that allows the owner to be compensated because the 2019 law also caps renovations not just at the ability to increase rents on vacancies but it capped the renovation amount at fifteen thousand dollars well right. thousand dollars prorated over 30 years it works out to about 83 dollars per month that would take 30 to 40 years for the average um, uh, renovation, which is 100 to $150,000 per apartment, including lead abatement, to be done. So if you're looking at a decade-long timeline to uh, a decades-long timeline to reimburse yourself on the rent and the $15,000 IAI, it's called individual apartment improvement, to be compensated to renovate these apartments your math doesn't work to rent the apartment back out. So we're seeing 
thousands, tens of thousands, we believe as high as 30,000 right now, vacant apartments across the city at a time when the city needs them more than ever, because a property owner actually saves money by not renovating the unit, losing all the money on the renovation costs and keeping the apartment vacant at the below market rent that it's currently regulated at because there's no mechanism to increase the rent to cover the renovation costs. It's essentially a defunding of the housing. So this law would allow us to do that. It, by the way, also ties the rents to the local average rent, stabilized rents. So these rents are not going to be coming, going from $800 or $700 or $1,000 to $5,000 or $6,000. We also know, and you know, Shimon, as someone who's an expert in the real estate market across New York City, many of the markets wouldn't even uh, accept a rent increase of that size. You can't go to the Bronx or parts That's of the world right. and take a rent at $700 and increase it to $8,000. It's simply no one would rent that apartment at that rate. Um, the, there are 200,000 pref rent, rent stabilized units right now where an owner could charge a higher rent and they don't for that exact reason. So this helps moderate the rent increase to a reasonable amount, allows the owner to invest back in, brings the units back online and creates a pipeline for voucher holders and liquidity and uh, asset value back into the property so the owner can eventually borrow against the value of the building. All of this, is done in an effort to improve the quality of the housing and uh, and uh, improve the value of the building itself for the property owner to make sure that they need to continue to maintain it yeah. for the benefit of the other renters. So yes, we have to pass it. Yeah, you said you said two things. One of them before, and one of them now. And you mentioned the voucher tenants, um, which is interesting. One of the things you said before is that rent stabilized is not affordable housing, and it's correct. It's just not affordable housing. There's no there's no income requirement. Everybody can live in a rent stabilized apartment now the other thing is uh what if what if there is that opportunity to take federally funded vouchers and allow landlords to upon vacancy to have these tenants in the rent stabilized unit uh preceding or superseding the um the the legal rents uh similar to the bill that was uh, done late last year that allows to do that in affordable housing buildings or buildings that have regulatory agreements, but convert that into rent-stabilized uh, buildings. So eventually, over time, rent-stabilized units, if if the landlord so choose, uh, so chooses, it, it 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 become they become affordable housing or affordable units at higher rents. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but oh, uh, these perfect. are the things. Yeah. yeah, no, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a hundred percent. I think the direction the industry needs to start embracing to understand that. Look, um, lawmakers uh, don't understand how affordable housing works, um, but they do in some contexts. So, 421A, uh, for example, is a subsidy to provide affordable housing. It's very, it's very cut and dry. Um, a, a, a developer benefits financially from providing certain rents at a below market. Well, there is no such tax decrease uh, availability for a rent stabilized owner where they benefit from providing across the building lower rents. What they have to do to a point is reduce their maintenance on the building, reduce improvements on the building and increase rents on the few free market units they do have to be able to balance their costs and their expenses 
um, there is no subsidy for the affordability rent stabilized properties provide. So we have right. to subsidize that, and for it to be long, to for it to be uh, maintainable in the long term, that's where we've gotten to the point with the rent stabilization system. So to your point, a hundred percent, if we can subsidize the affordability through vouchers of some of these ultra below market units, there's no reason we can't fix this vacancy problem in the short term and in the long term create a pipeline for folks who um, until we are able to balance the market out with new supply online to live in new york affordably for the property owner to be compensated for that affordability and for everyone to win um unfortunately right. we've fought a little bit by the lawmakers who don't seem to understand that the economics on a building don't change whether it's run by a nonprofit or of, of a private operator or a government operator. The, the costs are still the same. You still have a need to balance the uh, expenses of the building with the rent. And if the rent doesn't cover that and there isn't a subsidy there, then the building suffers, the quality of the housing suffers for the renter themselves. So if we subsidize the affordability, then the building has plenty of income to cover the renovation and upkeep that's needed. The renter gets a good quality housing and it's done at a price that they can afford. Yeah. And I, I can, I can add to that, that um, we as transaction oriented brokerage firms see pretty much every single buyer that's in the market to buy rent stabilized housing. We're also advised several very, very large uh, institutions on the valuations of these buildings. And I can tell you that the values have dropped. And that's the main reason why you still have family office buyers in this market. And it has dropped by a minimum of 30%, in many cases more, uh, more like 40 plus percent. Uh, we can show it. And 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 that's, that's super interesting. So buying today is because the price has dropped substantially. And the second thing that you said before, the hope that at some point the rules will change because they're not sustainable. There's no alignment of interest. Um, and with that, I wanted to ask you one, one more question specifically about collections. Um, we see a an estimate from CHIP that the current rent arrears for rent-stabilized buildings is well north of a billion dollars. That's a lot of money that landlords have not collected in a while. Um, what are we doing about it? What can we do about it as, as a society, as landlords and tenants, as, as CHIP? What can you do about it and how do we act? Well, you know, the, the start off is to bring attention to it. And there's, a, I think, an assumption that it's human nature. We fall into to think that the, the lawmakers are well aware of all the problems and that they're, you know, actively working to not fix them. Um, because we live with it every day. Property owners live with the uh, un inefficient, unoperating housing court system on a daily basis. 95% of cases in housing court are not for uh, an owner's want to evict the renter. They're collections. They are collections for rent that haven't been paid. 95% are for non-payment. And so uh, our organization uh, has been tracking arrears um, we think the 1.2 billion is a low ball figure. And what's happened since the pandemic is there is no housing court uh, movement really happening. So people are owing rent, it's let's say six months, several tens of thousands of dollars. Then the owner proceeds with a court proceeding, um, uh, an overcharge 
complaint in court. And that is protracted and drawn out for a year and a half to two years. And so you're adding arrears to that renter's case all throughout that process. Along the time, government is not interacting at all with the two parties. They're actually encouraging this continued defaultment of payment. Um, I can't really think of any other system where this has happened. Maybe the uh, the loan, the student loan system, but even then the government <laughs> forgave loans um, and, and that isn't happening here. So what's happening is this housing is being defunded through this non-payment proceedings. Um, the court is not moving. And uh, again, this is not at the end of the day, property owners trying to evict or, or get people out. This is simply them trying to collect money so that they can continue to operate the buildings. If the money doesn't go in, we said 1.2 billion, we think it's more. That's that's money that is not going back into these buildings to run run them, to improve them, to renovate them. Um, and, and the idea that the owners can just simply keep operating is this. So, so we think problem one is to identify the problem and make sure lawmakers are aware of it and continue to bring it to their attention, both in the press and through lo direct lobbying. And two is we have to reform the housing court system. Um, mm -hmm. It's simply not working the way it is. Um, we have advocated for additional resources, ad additional uh, court system resources so that they can process more cases. In fact, bring HRA, uh, the Human Rights Affiliate, the organization within the city that processes vouchers to your question before, bring those entities into the court system so that you can match up people of need with the arrears so that you're not delaying this. And why delay a court process for two years to find out the person ended up needing to owe the money in the, in the long run? Why, why, why not cut out the middleman of the court proceeding and fix the problem at its root, keep the person in the housing and get the housing paid for? Um, there's mm -hmm. so many better ways we can fix this court system um, and provide better housing for renters that is, than this current system of just delaying the inevitable, which has ended up uh, some renters I saw in arrear the other day of $120,000 uh, on our on, on apartment. Wow. Five years of arrears and wow. they're able to get an eviction. Um, it's just nonsense. It doesn't work. Uh, and property owners can't continue to keep uh, carrying the, abortion, the burden of affordability through the broken court system. Yeah, you said you said a lot of things, and, and I'm going to start wrapping this up. But what, what I like about the way you talk about um, landlords and tenants is that it seems like you understand that tenants essentially are clients here. They have rights. And tenants are the ones who are eventually paying um, the the rent, and and landlords should should listen to that. At the same time, landlords need to have the right to collect the rent and increase the rent over time, as long as it doesn't hurt the current tenancy in rent stabilized buildings, which which I like. That's the approach we should advocate for uh, versus landlord versus tenant um, type of approach. And I think that's a very smart. Uh, a view of the world. Tenants have rights. We acknowledge these rights. We actually want to service these rights. But when there's a vacancy, let us increase rents. And when there's no collections or arrears, let the court or the government or the tenant find a solution uh, that keeps us whole as 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 the uh, as the service provider. If that makes sense. Oh, 100 percent. And, you know, my my opinion and my position on this comes from an informed one. I've been evicted before. My mother and I are a single mother um, uh, as a child in Philadelphia, not New York, but we were evicted twice. Um, 
And uh, they were single family homes that we were living with. We were personal friends with the one landlord and an old Italian woman who, uh, who used to cook for us. And wow. she could pay her mortgage. And uh, that, that since I was six years old has informed my position on this. And I, and I, I completely understand the renter's perspective um, when they're in, in, in burdens uh, by rent and they can't afford their bills. Um, but I don't believe it's a property owner's fault that they cannot cover the, the renter's burden indefinitely, especially uh, when they have significant costs and in, in, a, in a fiduciary uh, and a moral responsibility to keep the building operating well for the other renters in the building. I think that is where government needs to interject itself to help the renter um, and by, by proxy helping the property owner keep the building up and running instead of, to your point, pitting two sides against each other. We cannot survive without our renters. They pay the right. rent. They pay. They help pay the expenses of the building, um, and without them, we don't survive. And vice versa. Without housing, without housing operators properly running housing, investing in it. Um, you know, we didn't talk about positives before we go. I want to end on a closer to a positive note. Please. Uh, you know, one thing, <laughs> um, and one thing I always, you know, bro brokers always have this. Uh, brokers and sellers have this kind of dichotomy of bringing me on, and I have to talk about you know, all the negatives of the rent laws, but at the same time, we're trying to talk about how New York is a, is a great place to own and, and operate housing. And I think it still is in the long run because of a couple of things. One, it's a great city and people want to live here. They'll always want to live here. But two, for people who, who genuinely care about that, who want to make a long-term investment, property, rent-stabilized property in particular has never been more affordable to purchase. Um, if you are willing to invest and keep it operated for the benefit of your renters in the in the short term, I think in the long term, we'll be able to change the law so you can be compensated for that investment and that hold position uh, on the rent stabilized property. And I think if you're long on New York, you can be long on rent stabilized housing as long as we uh, have the time and effort and energy to fix the, the laws so that they can work and have better balance for the property owner and the renter. I love it. And I think you're absolutely right. We see the same thing. The amount of capital that's in the city to invest in anything, but specifically in rent stabilized, is still is still high. And what's interesting is that when the institutions left that submarket, others came in. If it's national players or family offices or those who own rent stabilized but double down, uh, it was so interesting to see there's really a tremendous amount of of demand for any type of real estate. In the city, I completely agree with you uh, on that uh, positive positive note. Um, Jay, thank you so much for being here with us today. That was very enlightening and 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 good to hear your perspective, as well as the actions Chip is taking to uh, to help to help the city at the end of the day, to help landlords, uh, but also to help tenants uh, move forward in a much much better way for the city. Thank you. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Mm -hmm.